this morning, Mark chapter 1. Hopefully we'll be looking at verses really 1 through uh, 13 this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Um, I want to ask you a question that I'm going to get a lot of puzzling looks. Uh, it happened in the first service. It's bound to happen in this one as well. Um, what would you think of a groom? It's wedding day. He's up here in front of everyone. And he proclaims his love for his bride. In the meantime, he has about three girlfriends back home that he hasn't cut ties with yet. What would you think of that groom? Uh, sadly, though, I, as I think about that, that scenario, I, I think when we look at the Christian church today in America, I think that you can find a similar parallel, that many people uh, proclaim to follow Jesus Christ. They call themselves a Christian, uh, and yet... Their life really has not changed since making that decision to follow the Lord. And today, I think, in our text, we're going to see the source of that issue uh, of, of really a, what I would refer to as an easy believism of just, you know, don't worry about it. God's going to, uh, you know, be with you no matter how you live your life. Um, and so we'll look in verse 1. This is what we covered last week in our introduction. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and so this is Mark's way of really summarizing the entire content of the message of this book. This is what it's about, or more importantly, this is who it's about. It's not about Mark. It's not about us. It's not about the disciples, though all of us ultimately fall into this book somewhere and somehow. But it's about Jesus Christ and who he is. He is the Son of God, and he's given to us the gospel. Uh, but you'll notice in verse 2... As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You'll notice right off the get-go that Mark is going to do something that he doesn't do a whole lot in this gospel, and that is he quotes the prophets. He quotes from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and he directs our attention to a couple facts. Number one, the gospel of Jesus is not God's plan B. It wasn't like in the Old Testament, things didn't go the way God thought they were. So he has to come up from the drawing board and think, how am I going to rescue man? Because Israel has failed to be a light to the nations. He was not taken aback. We know from scripture, it describes Jesus as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the very world. That tells me that as God creates the universe and he creates man and he creates Adam and Eve and he, he ultimately knows that they will sin and he knows that it, not only that they sin but it will cost him his son and he still chooses to create man anyhow. Isn't that amazing? God's love for us, his desire to have us in right relationship with himself. So the gospel is not plan B as we'll see here. He quotes from the prophets, from the scriptures. And so it shows us that this is all going according to God's game plan. It also reveals to us that the gospel is not an isolated event or an, isolate, an isolation by itself in the revelation of God. It's rooted in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. Now today there is a movement within the church. Uh, I, I know Andy Stanley has sort of taken the public uh, stand of it, but there's a lot of pastors who teach this. And that is that we can unhitch from the Old Testament. Have you heard that recently? It's sort of going around on social media and things really in the last year or so. Um, many pastors teach that you don't really have to worry about the Old Testament. 
especially because we're Gentiles. We're not Jews for the most part here. Um, however, well, here's what's interesting to me. Mark is writing to a church, most likely in Rome, who is predominantly Gentile. And yet what does he do? He goes back to the Old Testament. He points us back to the prophets. And these are not people who grew up in the scriptures. If you're like me, I didn't grow up reading this book. I remember when I became a believer in Jesus and someone would have told me, turn to the Gospel of Mark, I would be looking at my neighbor figuring out how thick their Bible was to know where to turn to. I had no clue where any book of the Bible was. But yet Mark is writing to Gentile believers and he's pointing us to the fact that this is something that God has begun in times past and he's revealed it to us through the prophets. Uh, and, and by the way, so I will take Mark's side on that argument rather than the pastors who say, let's unhitch from the Old Testament. Um, the gospel is the culmination and the pinnacle of God's revelation. But it is something that God has been preparing before time even began. And, and Mark is just showing us the context of the gospel. And notice that he quotes here, which again is rare for him to quote. Uh, he'll actually allude to three different scriptures in the Old Testament before us in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, he quotes verbatim from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was the translation that Jesus would have been very familiar with, the disciples were familiar with, Mark is familiar with. And it does differ a little bit from the Hebrew. And so he quotes from the Greek translation, Exodus 23.20. 20. Uh, and so, in other words, if you were to look in your Bible, your Bible, if you have a New King James, was translated from the Hebrew not from the Septuagint. So if you were to look at Exodus 23.20, it reads a little bit different than what Mark chapter 1, verse 2 reads. Uh, but here's the context of, uh, of Exodus 23.20. Israel is making their first exodus through the wilderness in route of the promised land. And here, God promises Israel that he will send an angel or a messenger before them. Now, we also see in verse 2 that he quotes from the prophet Malachi, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, if you're taking notes. I just encourage you, you know, sometime go back to these portions of Scripture and look and see how they fit into the context of what Mark is telling us. To understand Malachi's uh, quote from chapter 3, verse 1, here's the background. He's writing to priests who despise his name. Isn't that weird? You're like, wait a minute, priests should rec represent the Lord. And yet he tells them they despise his name because they have offered offerings before him of defiled food and unclean animals or blemished animals, which were forbidden in the Old Testament. And yet they wanted to have favor with the Lord. They wanted to do things their way. They wanted the religion to be something that they could come up with and just make God pleased with them no matter what they did. But God will speak to these people through the prophet Malachi and tell them, I have absolutely no pleasure in you and I will not accept the offerings from your hands. Even though he will be great amongst the Gentiles, even though many people are cursing him and that the priests have made many to stumble. They have married idolaters. The priests have married people that don't worship the Lord. And they've also treated their wives harshly. They've divorced those who they should be loving. And so the state, this is what the priests would state. Everyone, including those who practice evil, are okay with God. Everyone, even those who practice evil, are okay with God. Isn't that the state of much of the church today? doesn't matter how you live. 
just believe in Jesus and everything's okay. You know, we've made it into just like a club that you join. Well, you join the club, you believe the facts, then all of a sudden everything's just a-okay. And this is the context of Malachi 3.1 where he proclaims, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And what's clear from Malachi is that the messenger will come before Yahweh himself, God himself. He will send the messenger. And so in Mark chapter 1 verse 2, here's the progression that we see. He's quoting from Exodus 23, 20, where the messenger goes before Israel in their first journey into the wilderness. Malachi 3, 1, where God will send the messenger before Yahweh. And finally in Mark here, we see God will send his messenger before Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you see how this is a strand that has began in the Old Testament? And what he's showing us is all of it has always pointed to the Son of God. That they were speaking of Jesus, even in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And so this messenger is to prepare the way for Messiah. And in verse 3, Mark continues quoting from the Old Testament scripture regarding this messenger. Notice in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And in here he quotes from Isaiah the prophet. In fact, if you have certain translations of the Bible, it doesn't say written in the prophets. It says written in the prophet Isaiah because he was probably the most prominent of the prophets mentioned here. Uh, And so he quotes Isaiah 43. And in the context, here's the context of Isaiah 43. The people are in the midst of bondage that they've brought upon themselves. They are in bondage that they've brought upon themselves. And yet, Isaiah is prophesying that there is a second exodus into the desert or wilderness where God will meet his people. He will comfort them and he will pardon their iniquity. Isn't that good news? Doesn't that sound familiar to the news that we proclaim as Christians here today? And so this exodus through the wilderness that our text of Mark draws upon. Now here's the question, some questions I think we can ask ourselves. How will God meet his people now? How will he meet his people? This is the expectation of the prophets. Who will this messenger be who goes before Yahweh? And where will the wilderness be? And what will be the messenger's message? Now we see from our text, uh, verse 3, that the message will be cried aloud for all to hear. I like that. The fact that God is not isolating this cry in a room somewhere where no one else can hear. Rather, this is a message that's going to be spoken aloud in public for everyone to hear. We also see the nature of the message of what he will proclaim, which is prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That word prepare means to make ready. And so as was custom in Mark's day, when you had a king who was going into a certain place, He would send messengers before him to prepare his way, the roads. You know, the roads weren't very nice back then. Sometimes I'm driving on I-68 and I think the roads aren't very well now, right? But, But even worse back then, and so these messengers would go before the king. They would take the path, make sure that it's set straight in a way that would promote the the king to go through. If there were potholes, he would raise them up. Uh, If there were places that were high, they would try to level them out. If there were trees or shrubbery or things blocking the path, they would cut them down so that the king could have full access to his destination. 
But it wasn't just about preparing a road. It wasn't just about preparing the path. The messengers would also go and herald or proclaim to the people that the king is coming. And so the people should be therefore ready to receive the king who's about to enter into their town or province. And so, again, that is the custom of of Mark's day and age. Now, ultimately, this messenger that the prophets are speaking of will prepare Israel's hearts for the coming Messiah. And it is what God, I believe, desires to do in our lives as well. Those of you who've put your faith and trust in Christ, can you see the work of God in your heart before you believed? Can you see the Lord drawing you to himself, preparing the way for you to make that profession of faith in Christ? I can look back and I can see God's hand all over my life. I can see how he protected me from myself. How many of us should be dead here who the Lord spared your life, right? And so we see the Lord, he wants to prepare the way so that we can receive Christ properly. Jesus wants our hearts, but isn't it true that there are obstacles that must be first cleared out before we can fully receive him? In fact, I would say even as Christians, aren't there things that kind of come into our lives that we have to get out of our lives so that we can fully walk with the Lord? Now, what's interesting is this messenger that enters into our text, it's been almost 400 years of silence where God has not spoken to his people through the prophets. 400 years. And I can put myself in their shoes. Wouldn't you maybe go through autopilot, spiritually speaking, if you haven't heard from God for 400 years? And so this messenger should be like a spiritual shot of adrenaline. They hear the message proclaimed of him preparing the way for the king, Yahweh, God himself. This should be waking people up out of their spiritual slumber. And so verse 4, we're introduced to this messenger. That is John. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. And so again, John is the messenger and he came baptizing where? Notice it tells us here, in the wilderness. And this, of course, follows along with the, what the prophet said. Keep, keep an eye on that word wilderness. We're going to see this word popping up a lot over the next couple verses. And so he came baptizing in the wilderness. Now the question that people ask is, why was John baptizing? Because this, this is something as Christians we kind of lose because we're so used to baptism today. But in, in first century Judaism, there really wasn't a lot of baptism going on. We know that there was cleansings taking place. You would go and you would cleanse yourself, and usually you did that to yourself. We also know that Gentiles who be, wanted to enter into Judaism, they were proselytes, they, be, they believed and wanted to follow Judaism, would be baptized. But why was John baptizing Jews? Israel, he's calling people out to be baptized, to repent. Why is he doing that? The only logical explanation I can think of, and I don't know if I'm right on this, it's just a guess, but is he telling the Jewish people that being Jewish by birth is not enough? Is he telling them that they need to repent and get right with the Lord, despite the fact that they are born into Jewish homes, having maybe the Torah read every single uh, Sabbath and whatnot, and all the customs that they followed aren't enough? Perhaps, I don't know. It's a possible explanation for it. But we don't know why he was baptizing. I think we will see that a little bit, though, as we follow the narrative and understand how it relates to the Old Testament. Um, And so another question is, what was John's message? What was he preaching if he was proclaiming this in the wilderness? And of course, we see in our text in verse 4, the answer is he was preaching repentance 
for or literally because of the remission of sin. Now, repentance or repent, that's one of those buzzwords. And who here, when you hear the word repent, just says, yes, I love that word. Isn't that one of those, in fact, when you see people making fun of preachers, what's, or, or you see, well, little, see a little cartoon of a preacher, maybe in the newspaper or in a magazine, what's usually the first word coming out of that preacher's mouth? Repent, right? Fire and brimstone, repentance. We, we kind of lump them together. It's not a word that we like, I think, in our flesh. I think we rebel against it, honestly. It does something to us. What do you mean I have to repent? Repent of what? Now, the word repentance, spetanoia, means a change of mind, right? A change of mind. And I think it has two different faces to it. Number one, it means a change of mind regarding sin. It's not just feeling sorry for sin. Please understand that. I think as Christians, sometimes we confuse this. Where you sin, you know you shouldn't have done it, you do it, and you feel really bad about it. You feel guilty. Your conscience is convicting you. That's not repentance. That's a feeling. That's good. If you don't feel sorry for doing things that are wrong, now you're in the line of being a psychopath. <laughs> right? You've lost the ability to feel. You've lost the ability to sense wrong or evil. We, we want to feel bad when we do bad, when we do wrong. That is a God-given uh, function of our conscience. We want that. But repentance is more than just feelings. It is literally turning from it. Okay? It means a change of mind, a change of perspective of sin and what it is. But it's not just turning from sin. It's not just changing my mind regarding sin. I believe it's also changing my mind regarding God and who he is. The point is this. God is holy and we are not. And the issue is our hearts. That we put people, places, and things above him... And therefore, our lives end up heading towards those things and away from God. And listen, this can be good things or bad things. We know there's sin. We know there's things that we shouldn't do. But I can put my wife above the Lord. I can put my boys above the Lord. I can put our house above the Lord. I, I can put a job above the Lord. I can put anything above him. And what happens is those things that we put before him become idols. And we believe the age-old lie that there is true pleasure, wisdom, and power outside of God and his word. And therefore, we must repent of our sin. We must repent of those things that we've put before him. And today, when I think about the gospel that's preached, I see so often that repentance is kind of left out. We don't talk about repentance that much. It's just believe but we need to understand that there needs to be a change taking place in relationship to sin. And so many people will say, don't worry how you live your life, just believe the message. But wasn't that what the priests in Malachi's day were saying? It doesn't matter if you're living in a way that's evil. God loves you anyhow. And it's true, he loves you anyhow. But it doesn't make you right with him. William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, said this, and I, I think this is chillingly prophetic he said and this is this he spoke in the 19th century just to give you a context he said the chief danger of the 20th century will be religion without the holy spirit christianity without christ forgiveness without repentance salvation without regeneration politics without god and heaven without hell now i turn on christian tv and i'm like <laughs> he nailed it right 
He nailed it. And so there's something missing. And the idea that we see before us is that those who repented of their sins were baptized. He came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance because of the remission of sin. And so the idea, again, is that they repented of their sins, then they're baptized. Uh, They were to come out of the Egypt of sin and enter the waters to meet the Lord in the wilderness. And this is in preparation to meet the one who is coming. Now, verse 5, and real quick, before we even get to verse 5, I just want to point something out. John is not saying that if you just get baptized, all your sins are washed away. In fact, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, actually says that he didn't preach that, just the baptism itself would cleanse sin. But rather, those who repented were the ones that John baptized. Because you'll recall there were people who he wouldn't baptize. There were Pharisees who came to him. And what did he call them? You brood of vipers, right? Positive, encouraging John the Baptist. (laughs) You brood of vipers. He wouldn't baptize them. Why? Because they wouldn't repent of their sin. So it wasn't just like, oh, come to the waters and your sins will be washed away. No, that was, it was evidence of that their heart was getting right with the Lord. That's why he would baptize people. So verse 5, then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, if there's an idea that we shouldn't preach repentance, that it's going to drive people away, then John is kind of the opposite of that because we see him preaching truth, and yet what's happening to the people? They're flocking to him. In fact, in the Greek, the picture is people keep coming to him and coming to him and coming to him, and he's proclaiming and preaching repentance, and people are constantly being baptized and baptized and baptized. It's an ongoing thing that John is doing before our eyes. And people are coming to him from Judea, They're coming to him from the countryside, but they're also coming to him from Jerusalem, from the city. And I like the fact that he doesn't change his message for the country folk or for the urbanites, right? He's preaching the same message, and that is repentance, turning from sin to the Lord. And they continually went out to him. So the idea, again, is that they are coming, they are repenting, they are confessing and being baptized. Verse 6, now John was clothed, with camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. You know, I I love the fact that they point this out. Anyone ever get your wardrobe uh, advice from John the Baptist? That would be a little scary if you came in here with, with a camel hair thing and a rope. I don't know. I guess we would think of you as a prophet. The point is, he's dressed as a man from the wilderness. He's wearing camel hair, which wasn't very comfortable. He's actually wearing a belt, and it really resembles the prophet Elijah. Remember, he's coming in the spirit of Elijah, we know. And so he's wearing a belt like Elijah wore in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. He's also eating like a man from the wilderness. Now, I have to admit, if I was stuck in the wilderness, I wouldn't live very long. I'm not very practical. I've never hunted. Some of you guys would live a lot longer than me if everything just shut down. But John knew how to live in the wilderness, and we see his diet here consists of lovely delicacies. Honey, which is not that bad. I can eat some honey. But then we see the second thing, these locusts. Interestingly, locusts are the only insect that the law allows us to eat in the Old Covenant. And so he eats these locusts. Typically, they would be roasted or boiled. I don't know what he did with them. But here's the really interesting thing. Those of you who are going to Israel in a couple months from now, 
you can still have locusts today. In fact, today, a lot of people will put relish on them just to make them edible, I guess. I don't know. So those of you, this is my challenge in the first service this morning. Those of you who are going to Israel, if you can just take a selfie of you eating one of those locusts with relish on it and send it back to us so you can encourage us, (laughs) we would really love that. But this is his diet. He's a man of the wilderness. And so we're going to see in verse 7 more of his message. Notice he preached saying, there comes one after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Now, this is very significant. What he's telling us is, this is a task that a slave would do in first century of taking someone's sandals off their feet, of washing their feet. And he's saying here, I'm not even worthy to do that to the one who's coming. What perspective? And remember who's talking here. This is John the Baptist. A couple things about his background that Mark lets out. Number one, he was born miraculously. He's born miraculously. His mother was well past childbearing age. An angel actually tells them about it. Did an angel ever tell your parents that you would be born? Wouldn't that kind of give you a little bit of an air about yourself? Yeah, you know, the angels proclaim my birth. You know, here I am. That's what I tried to tell my wife the first time I met her. She didn't buy it. But uh, so born miraculously, he's also written about in the prophets. Can you imagine being able to tell someone, hey, see this prophet Isaiah right here? That's me, right? I am important. Listen to what I have to say. Not only that, he's a physical relative of Jesus in the flesh. They're cousins. That'd be pretty cool. You know who's my cousin, (laughs) right? He's a prophet of God. In fact, he is the last of quote-unquote, sort of old covenant prophets. Jesus will call him the greatest of the prophets. He's the one who actually gets to see what he's prophesying about. And he's revered and followed by many. He can draw a crowd. Now, I don't know about you, that is a recipe for pride and disaster. And yet notice his mind. Look at his way of thinking about Jesus. He's not even worthy to perform the work of a slave. He's not even worthy to be Jesus' slave. That's his perspective. What an extreme attitude of humility. Why? Why does John exemplify this when you have all these people coming and confessing their sin and you have this man of humility? I believe it's because he possessed a right view of Jesus Christ. And this is the very heart of repentance. You see, as we perceive the greatness of Jesus, We cannot help but bow our heads, our hearts, and our bodies before him. Sort of like everyone who encountered the Lord in the Old Testament, whether it be Isaiah or Moses or Job, what happens to those people? They encounter Yahweh, and we are undone. We're unraveled. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. That understanding who God is does something to our hearts and our minds. And not only does it do it to us, guess what? Now we have to tell other people about him as well. And so the key, I believe, to repentance of turning from sin to Christ is knowing who Jesus Christ is. Then we will see the emptiness of our sin and turn from it to him. But until this happens, we will believe the lie that other things bring us greater joy than Christ himself. And we will avoid him at all costs. Isn't it true before you knew Jesus that you avoided him at all costs? You ran, anyone run from him? Hide from him? 
hiding our sin from him and darkness trying to go away from him. I, I did. I thought he was going to keep me from enjoying life, that he'd keep me from having fun. But then when you turn to him, you realize, wow, he's the one that my heart always longed for, wasn't it? He's the one that I was looking for in all those other kinds of pleasure. And yet I found it in him. And so here's what I want you to understand and take away. Repentance is a great gift of God. Repentance is a great gift of God. If I was to ask you, who here would like a new start in life? Start all over. New start, fresh start. And for real, right? <laughs> Some, we usually think that, but no one else is ever going to give us a fresh start. They're going to remind us of our past. But if I was to say, I'm going to give you a fresh start, wouldn't that be good news? And yet that is what God is offering for us in repentance. You're able to leave behind the empty things you thought would fulfill you, but only left you empty and never satisfied and always looking for more and more and more. Things ultimately that destroy you and lead you down a path of destruction. And in repentance, you will meet the one who will meet your every need. We are looking for fulfillment, purpose, and identity in relationships, careers, material possessions, pleasure, self-advancement, things that have cost us dearly and left us only wanting more. And you find all that in Jesus. Isn't that something? What are the things that keep you from fully embracing Jesus as Lord? We all have them. See, before you were a Christian, there were things that kept you from really turning to him as your Savior and Lord. But even as believers, aren't there things in our life that really kind of hold us back from following him and serving him? What are the things in my life, in my heart, that I hold on to that I don't want to let go of? That I know if I let go of this, somehow God's going to meet me and I'm going to encounter him. Are they worth it? If you think in line of eternity... Is it worth missing out on the hand of God for things that you can't keep? Because you can't keep any of it. But it gets better, verse 8. Notice his speech here. I indeed baptized you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, just as Israel was led through the wilderness by the Spirit... So the second exodus into the wilderness would result in the outpouring of God's Spirit. And the one who John is proclaiming is the one who will pour him out. You see, John's baptism was merely symbolic with water. It was of the flesh, but the one who is coming would give the reality of it. The very presence of God would be among his people. Please understand this. As the Jewish person in the first century heard about the prophets proclaiming the coming of God's Spirit being poured out on his people, it was more than just being Spirit-filled, like we think of today. It was the fact that when God's Spirit would be poured out, God would be amongst his people. He would be their God. He would be with them. No one would have to teach them who he is. And so they looked forward to the coming of the Spirit because it was the coming of the presence of God in their life. This is what he's proclaiming here to the people. I'm baptizing you with water, but he's coming. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit of God. The very presence of God will be among you. Isn't that great news? This is what their hearts long for or should long for. And so in verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, if you're reading this in the first century, you're looking at this and you're like, wait a minute, Nazareth. Because Nazareth was a little, we'll say it's like a hick town, right? 
It's backwoods. It's a small little place that no one in Jerusalem probably has ever heard of. And they speak in a way that you can tell that they're from Nazareth. Remember, Nathaniel himself said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was not the place that you would expect the Messiah to come from, the Son of God. And by the way, all the people who were flocking to John, it tells us, were from Judea and Jerusalem. That's down south. And yet you have this northerner coming with a northern accent, getting baptized by John in the River Jordan. And... The question that kind of stumps us a little bit is, why is Jesus being baptized? Right? I mean, he didn't sin. It wasn't like he had to come confessing his sin. Why was he baptized? And there's different ideas on this. One is that he came to identify with those who he came to save. There are others who say that he came to identify with John's ministry, the fact that John was proclaiming ultimately who he is. And so he's identifying with John's message. But there's also the fact that he came to fulfill what Israel failed to do. And so he's entering into the wilderness through baptism, just as Israel in the Old Testament entered into the wilderness through baptism. But what a difference between his baptism and theirs. Did Israel do very well in the wilderness? Not so well, right? Most of them died and perished because of their sin, their unbelief in the Lord. They were going in the wilderness for 40 years, just kind of meandering here and there, to and fro. And so they, they missed the mark. But we see here Jesus is different from them. In verse 10, immediately, this is while well, Jesus is being baptized, coming up from the water, he, that's Jesus, saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Now, other gospel writers show us that John the Baptist witnesses this. He sees the Spirit descending upon Jesus, and he knows this is the one, the one that the Spirit descends upon. But here it's telling us this is what Jesus saw as he's being baptized. He sees the heavens rent open, and again, this is Old Testament stuff here because the Jews look forward to the day of the coming of the Spirit of God as the heavens are opened. And so he witnesses this, and the Spirit of God comes down upon him, literally into him. It's not a P. It's not coming upon, like we see the Spirit coming upon people in the other parts of the Scripture. Literally, the Spirit comes into him as a, as a dove, looking like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. See, while the people came to be baptized by John to confess their sin, the father confesses Jesus. Isn't that something? The father confesses that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the very thing that we started out at in verse 1 of chapter 1. And so the son who had and knew no sin had nothing to repent of. This is my one and only son. Very mirroring, mirroring uh, Abraham when he has to offer Isaac his only son whom he loves. This is God's only son, the unique one, who pleases him and pleases him alone. This is, he's saying, this is the life that pleases me. That's why everyone else has to repent. Because there's only one life that pleases the father. And that's the life of the Son. And this is in reference to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, Isaiah 42, 1. The blessing of the Father upon the Son. And we get a glimpse of his true identity. And as we go through Mark, here's what we're going to see. As the reader or the hearer, we understand his identity now. You can't escape this, who Jesus is. He's telling us point blank who he is. But the people who encounter Jesus are going to have no clue. 
They're going to see him perform miracles and he's going to cast out demons. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to calm the storms and people are going to be awestruck. Who is this man? But Mark is telling us right off the bat, this is who he is. Mark tells us in verse 1, the prophets tell us, John the Baptist tells us, and right before our eyes now the Father is telling us of who the Son is. He's the Son of God. And the Spirit we see here coming upon him, or into him, I believe, is the Spirit's anointing for the ministry that God has had for the Son. Now verse 12, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And that word drove here, it's a very violent word. Usually, sometimes it's used of when someone would drive out demons. It implied violence many times. But nonetheless, the Spirit of God is so involved in Jesus' life. He is so in tune with the Spirit that he literally drives him into the wilderness. Why? Verse 13, and he was there in the wilderness. If you take notes, note how many days was he there? Forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. So he's tempted by the devil. Ultimately, we see this is a time of testing for Jesus. Now, the 40 days, that, that number 40, does that ring a bell for anyone? This is a key number in Scripture. You have certain numbers in Scripture that are very significant, seven being one, 40 being another one. We know Moses went up to the mount for 40 days. We see that number kind of coming and going in different places. But I think most significantly, we know of the first Exodus account. When Israel was in, the, uh, in their first Exodus, they left Egypt. They're baptized into the Red Sea, and they're tested by God in the wilderness for how long? For 40 years. And here we have the Son of God who is baptized, led by the Spirit, just as Israel was led by the Spirit. Remember the cloud that came by fire by night, cloud by day, the Shekinah glory of God. We have the Son who is baptized, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days as opposed to 40 years. And after the Father's commendation, he finds himself in an intense testing, very similar to Job. Remember when God pronounced the blessing upon Job? There's no one like him. What comes next? Boom. Spiritual testing. In fact, we see here Satan himself. This is not just demons. Please understand, he is the highest of high when it comes to the hierarchy of, whatever, of the whole demonic realm. He's the, the prince of the world. This is Satan himself going head to head with the Son of God. Good versus evil. The arch enemy of God against Jesus himself. And he shows us very clearly that there is a spiritual battle going on. We're going to see this spiritual battle all throughout Mark's gospel because we realize it's not just physical, right? All the things that Jesus encounters, even the things that we encounter in this life, many times go back to spiritual dynamics. And so he's facing the enemy, not only the enemy, but notice that he also points out there's wild beasts. This isn't a very safe place to be, all alone, in the wilderness, with wild beasts. And by the way, Satan's there too. But God is faithful, and he has the angels ministering to Jesus. Now, in Matthew's gospel, it seems like after Jesus finishes the 40 days of temptation, the angels come and minister to him. Here in Mark's gospel, it seems that they minister him throughout the testing period. The bottom line is this. Does Jesus sin in his temptation? No, right? 
He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet he was without sin. And it's his life and his life only that fully pleases the Father. So when God gives us this word this morning, he offers us a couple things. Number one, he offers us repentance this morning, a chance to change direction, to change the way we think, the way we think about sin, but more importantly, the way we think about the Lord Jesus. And he offers us not just repentance, that's good news, but even greater news is he offers us his life. And the very presence of God can come into your life through Jesus Christ. The very thing that you need more than anything else, you know, religious rituals won't satisfy. John the Baptist didn't satisfy. He had a baptism of water. It could only wash the physical body. But Jesus has a baptism of the Spirit of God so that God can dwell with you and he will actually be in you. And he will give you a new life. He will give you his life. But you have to turn from sin and turn to him and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Have you done that? What are you holding on to that's worth it? Where have those things brought you to this point? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in the Savior? His life is the only life that God is satisfied with ultimately. That's why you're either in Christ or you're not. Those who are in Christ have your sins washed away, forgiven, cleansed. Think of it, everything you've ever done, everything, all the regrets, things you would never do if you could do it over again, these things he paid for on the cross. He died in your place and in my place, condemned, he stood, right? And he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating the enemy himself. In fact, it says he made a spectacle of the principalities and powers when he rose from the grave, when he defeated them on the cross. And so have you, what have you done with Jesus Christ? That's the question of all questions. John the Baptist got it right. He understood, I'm not even worthy to be a slave. Oh, but I'll take him as my Savior. And I'll make him my Lord. And I'll give him the reverence and the honor that he and he alone deserves. Have you made that decision for Christ?